This is ultimately about power. This is less about gender and more about power, if you ask me. was the voice of Patty Haidu, Canada's Minister of Employment, Workforce Development, and Labour. She joined HuffPost Canada for a special conversation with Peggy Nash, a Labour pioneer and the former NDP MP. Men often say, I'll run, and women most often wait to be asked. I'm Althea Raj, and this is a special edition of Follow Up. March, of course, is Women's History Month, and with that in mind, we brought both women together on stage here in the Toronto studio of HuffPost Canada to talk about Parliament Hill as a woman, the Me Too movement, career development, and gender equity. It was an illuminating and, yes, fun discussion. We hope you enjoy it. So the one thing we all have in common is basically Parliament Hill, so I thought I'd start there, but maybe a little bit... A little bit before that, why did you decide to enter politics? Why make the leap? Not sure. Um, uh, I had been involved in movement politics most of my adult life. Uh, The labor movement, the women's movement, advocating for childcare, uh, to end violence against women, uh, anti-poverty, environment, you name it. And... um, Ultimately, what became clear to me is that while movement politics is so important and and can make a huge difference in the conversations that we're having, ultimately, you need political power and you need women at the table to make the changes that you want to see. So I thought, why not me? So that's why I ran. (laughs) Well, for me... um I guess I wouldn't. I didn't know that that was the name of that movement politics. But I guess I was also a movement politician as well. Uh, you know, cut my teeth in not-for-profit and uh, the world of adult literacy, and had a fantastic mentor at that time who talked to me about social justice and change and and you know advocacy and taught me many many skills. And anyways, I, I think it was the journey through. Drug policy. I wrote the Thunder Bay Drug Strategy, following in the footsteps of Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto. Uh, really frustrated with uh, the Harper government and the cruelty that I perceived towards the people that I cared about. People who use substances, people who are homeless, people who are indigenous. Mm-hmm. And uh, running the shelter was the icing on the cake. I mean, I saw, uh, you know, I had done a lot of work on policy from the policy lens on many of these issues where I sporadically interacted with people but didn't really live amongst them, if you will. And running a shelter, um, especially a shelter that's like many of these shelters, very underfunded, the executive director is also washing floors and serving lunches and getting to know clients and, you know, interacting with people. And I was uh, mortified at the neglect of our government towards Indigenous people, towards, again, people who use substances and, and other other folks that had often, through no fault of their own, most often, through no fault of their own, ended up in terrible situations. And I wanted to be, I wanted to help change that, and I also wanted them to have a voice. So how did you get to that stage? Did you wait for someone to come to you and say, I think you'd be a fantastic candidate, you should run? Or did you... How did you navigate this world of like partisan politics and really get your foot in the door? 
Um, I, uh, you know, it's funny. Men <clears throat> often say, I'll run. And women most often wait to be asked. And on average, women wait to be asked about three times before they run. I was the average. Um, when I was first approached to run by Jack Layton, I said, me, politics, I, I, I don't think I can do that. I'm not sure I'm qualified. Um, I doubted myself. And he asked me uh, on a few occasions. And uh, finally, I, I, I came to the conclusion that I would, that I would run. And um, it's funny because I had knocked on doors for other people in campaigns, but I wasn't really someone deeply involved in party <coughs> politics. I really had no clue how to get myself nominated, um, what a nomination campaign would be like, how to get myself elected. It was a huge learning curve. and. Um, a little scary at times because I found that there was someone um, in my community who had been campaigning for quite some time for the nomination. It was only because there's a party rule you have to have an equity candidate for the nomination before it can go ahead that they hadn't had the nomination meeting by then. So I had a tiny short window in order to run a nomination campaign and get myself nominated and I thought, oh my God, I jumped off a cliff and there's no net, I'm not going <laughs> to succeed. But um, I, I brought a good team around me and, and it was a really good lesson that I have learned many times is if you've got a good team and rely on their strengths, it can really help you find success and we were successful. Mm. Impressive. Mm -hmm. Same. I mean, people told me I, I've never been afraid to tell people what I think. So oftentimes I would be, uh, you know, my colleagues in public health, for example, would say, you should think about politics. But I, I've been a single mom most of uh, my children's life. And so, uh, you know, kind of went in one ear and out the other because I thought that's impossible. Who will take care of my children? There's no possible way that I could be on the road that much or be in Ottawa or and then they got older, you know, and it's a miraculous thing. I also have a really supportive partner who's here today. Um, thanks, Paul. And, uh, you know, uh, it was a joint decision. And again, uh, the Liberal Party actually had a great campaign in the last election called Ask Her to Run, based on the same knowledge that uh, women have to be asked repeatedly and oftentimes will underestimate their qualifications. And so uh, it was a combination of things, me becoming ready for politics, the children being older, and then... Uh, a nurse practitioner that I worked with at the shelter who came in and, and provided services submitted my name to ask her to run. And, uh, and I thought, you know what, I should try. And I had the same experience, by the way. The, um, I'm the first female liberal candidate in my riding and the first female MP. Um, and the former uh, Electoral District Association, EDA for short, um, wasn't super thrilled about me at all. I did not represent uh, the old boys club. They didn't necessarily see that the party was shifting and changing. Um, they had a very sort of rigid idea that it was going to be one of them that was going to run. And so we kind of swooped in, took them by surprise, and and uh, again had a great team. Young people, uh, older people, just this group of people that I knew from my life. And all actually, most of them, new liberals. Uh, and so we put this team together and, uh, and here we are. <laughs> 
I believe the Liberals have a fund to help women candidates. Mm-hmm. And um, Peggy, you mentioned the equity um, requirement. Um, is that important? Should there be quotas to help encourage more women to run, but also perhaps the sort of the guys in the EDAs to seek out women to run? Well, the way it works in the NDP is that you have to have an equity mm-hmm. candidate for the nomination meeting. And then it's up to the candidate to get him or herself mm-hmm. elected uh, or nominated. Um, I, I, I think formal quotas, while I don't, I don't rule it out, I think it is more difficult in a first-past-the-post system. There are some countries that have it like uh, France has mm-hmm. it, where they have two MPs uh, in a given jurisdiction, so they have a 50-50. But um, it is a much easier, like South Africa, in the first post-apartheid uh, election, they set a quota of 30% women, mm-hmm. and were able to achieve that. So it's because they have a list system. You know, it's a technical thing about voting systems, but... Um, I think increasingly parties are understanding or should be understanding that when they run good women candidates, they can win. And I think increasingly parties themselves are reaching out just just as the the Liberals did in the last campaign and and I know the NDP tries to do is to get 50-50 representation in uh, candidates. They don't always achieve it, but they try to. And especially to achieve that kind of parity in winnable seats, because it's one thing to have a, a lot of women running in seats where, frankly, your party doesn't have a hope of winning. So understanding where you might have winnable seats and ensuring that you have strong women candidates and a diversity of women candidates, so it's not just white women getting elected, I think uh, is essential. And parties are understanding increasingly that that is an asset. So um, maybe they don't need any kind of formal quota to get there. Yeah, I I think Peggy sums it up nicely. The problem that I see with quotas is that it's easy to, I mean, it would be somewhat easy to fulfill a quota. It's a little hard when the seats are held. That's another issue. I mean, are you going to open up every seat and have an open nomination when you have strong leaders that are already there that want to run again. I mean, those conversations are interesting. But the quota challenge is that, you know, you can throw women in a completely unwinnable seats. I mean, every party knows where they are. And, uh, you know, I've had the privilege of meeting some of the young women who've done that for our party. And it's a it's a difficult experience. I mean, depending on, on the young woman and the, her circumstances, it can be actually pretty traumatic. And so I wouldn't want to necessarily uh, use a quota system um, and see more women, quote unquote, used uh, to, to, to achieve that quota and, and go through those experiences without really a hope of winning um, solely to fill the quota. So I think, you know, you mentioned money. I mean, that's a huge barrier. Uh, we do have the Judy LaMarche Fund. Uh, it's it helped me when I was a candidate. Um, and my party was very generous with us because the uh, EDA had not done a lot of work and had been coasting around and not doing any fundraising. We were kind of broke. And we did an okay job fundraising, but you know we got support from the party. They knew that I could win and they backed me. And uh, in it, and it made a huge difference uh, to have the support of the party. Uh, 
Um, they trained our team. They sent us resources. They helped us with phone calls. I mean, there was a, a lot of support that came uh, to me, uh, especially as a new candidate. And like you say, Peggy, when you're a new candidate, you really don't know how any of this all works. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's overwhelming. And so to have the support of a party who's going to say, you know, you're a strong leader, you're a strong female candidate, we're going to invest in you and we're going to make sure that you know what you're doing, your team knows what they're doing, and you have the resources to do a good job, made a big difference in my campaign. Peggy, I think you've talked about fundraising too as a challenge when it comes to women candidates, especially to raise your hand and ask for money is not easy. Yeah, it was, you know, when I first started uh, running, I didn't like having my picture taken. I didn't <laughs> like asking people for money. I was one of those people who said, I'll take the picture. You you go up front. And um, now I'm, I've totally changed. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> it's like, that where's the selfie? Um, but, uh, yeah, something that I wasn't comfortable doing was asking people for money. For my campaign, I was comfortable asking for money for somebody else. And, um, you know, you get over that because you understand that, that money, you know, we, we have much stricter campaign limits here in Canada than south of the border where you might need millions of dollars to run a campaign. Here, the the limits, while still they can be daunting, you know, $100,000, depending on the riding, uh, it, can, it can still be daunting, but it, it's something where you can ask people for money and, and achieve the goal. So, um, yeah, I still didn't like it. You know, I still don't like it, but um, I learned how to do it. But, you know, a friend really helped me a lot when I first ran because I did not want to ask for money. And she said, listen, you've got a huge Rolodex of contacts. She said, you write a letter, put your heart into it as though you're talking to me personally about why you want to run and be elected to represent your area. And she said, put that in a letter and then give me every contact you have, your dentist, your doctor, your high school principal, everybody that, uh, everyone who knows you, even if they're not at all involved in politics. And then she took the letter, she mailed it out to all my contacts, and then started phoning people. And I only had to do, uh, she had a team, but I only had to do a few calls, and they were painful and I hated it, but um, it helped us uh, secure the nomination and give us enough money left over to launch our election campaign, and that was key. Well, I'm sure you had to do even more phone calls when you ran for the leadership. So. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> By then I was comfortable. Uh, can I just yeah, jump in on that? Because I think it's important, especially for women who are listening, to know that you don't need to be rich and connected to do this. I think it's really important, and I think Peggy meets a great point. Our elector electoral system is vastly different than the United States. I am not rich and connected. I ran a homeless shelter. I mean, you know, I'm a single mom. I, uh, you know, come from a, a background of, of uh, poverty, you know, so it's not necessarily, I, I don't hang with the rich men, you know what I mean? And so they didn't give me money, and it didn't matter in the end. And the best advice I got 
was exactly that. Go through your list of people that you've worked with that are passionate about the things that you're passionate about, that know you, and ask them for a reasonable amount of money. You know, uh, explain to them that for $400, they'll get a tax receipt that uh, essentially makes their donation $100. You know, talk, talk to your friends and your family. And that's exactly what I did. And it was uh, so much easier. And, you know, I think that that is a big barrier for people when they're thinking about entering politics, in particular women, because we don't like asking for money for ourselves. We don't necessarily, you know, we're socialized actually to not um, not focus on ourselves in that way. And so uh, when you start to break it down into who who are the people that are going to believe in me and get away from the idea that you have to have sort of rich friends, it makes it a million times easier. I want to ask you about once you came to Parliament Hill, did you? ever give any thought to the fact that sometimes the House of Commons is not the nicest place for women? Um, well, it was a very different environment, for sure. Um, I, I felt... I felt it was very old-fashioned. Um, did you feel that way? Yeah, oh my gosh! It just felt like From the moment, uh... out of the 19th century. It really did. Um, I mean, first of all, you're in this 19th century building, and it's very beautiful. Uh, but you know, there are rules for everything, and and I don't know the parliamentary tradition and the costumes and the symbols. Um, At least you don't have to wear a tie. Yeah. <laughs> There's no dress codes for women. They didn't yeah. think we'd ever be there. Yeah, they, they thought there would never be women. Good point. Um, yeah, it, uh, it, it's, um, it's a very conservative atmosphere. Um, having said that, you know, I came out of a labor movement, which, um, you know, was very male-dominated, mm -hmm. and although um, I, you know, and, and many people in the labor movement were involved in, in many progressive issues and... Um, but, you know, there were structures there as well. But, um, you know, when, when you're in the House of Commons and uh, people heckle or jeer or whatever, it never bothered me because I have been in pretty raucous meetings before. So it, it maybe it, it um, prepared me a bit. But, um, yeah, I found it very old-fashioned and... Um, I don't know. To MPs, uh, the structures are, are deferential, and I'm assuming to ministers even more so. But for women generally, it feels, um, it doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't, there are many things, including uh, the form of question period. Um, it, 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 it's not a comfortable it's not a collegial environment, <laughs> to say the least. And I'm not saying we can get consensus on all the issues, but I do get concerned when politics becomes so polarized that even to have a conversation with someone on the other side of the aisle, uh, some people see that as somehow, um, well, how can you possibly have a discussion with a conservative? A betrayal. A betrayal. Uh, I don't operate like that. I, I, my background is as a negotiator, and negotiators, yes, you can be in confrontation, but your goal is to find common ground and find agreement, mm -hmm. and I think that's the mentality that I brought to Parliament Hill. And <laughs> most people don't operate that way, so I found Not that there. very challenging. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about you, Patty? Well, 
I think for me, the first time I realized this was going to be a completely different journey is, I mean, I had just come out of trying to bring our shelter into the sort of modern days of human resource management, you know, with, uh, um, you know, strengthening things like the Health and Safety Committee, making sure that everybody had a job description, that we had a performance evaluation plan. Like, this is, this is where I had been working in the shelter space. It was very... Uh, very sort of haphazard, and I was trying to bring a little bit more structure and stability to the organization. And so I'll never forget that first orientation session when I came into Ottawa and sat down with the House of Commons team, and they're telling you, you know, what you need to do to put your office together. And I said, well, so what kind of staff, do you have some job descriptions? Like, who am I looking for? And they said, no. Do you have salary grids? Like, is there, like, how do, how do I know? Like, what do I pay the person who stays in the hill? And what does the hill person do? And None of that exists. Um, you know, as you know, I've introduced Bill C-65, which is around harassment and sexual violence, but it also uh, protects health staff, all parliamentarian staff, um, under Part 2 of the Labor Code, which means that they will be also protected through a health and safety lens. This didn't exist before. So I was just stunned that we had a workplace, as you said, that was so old-fashioned that it didn't even consider the, what we would consider norms now of a workplace. Um, so that was my first, you know, sort of shock. The hierarchy that you mentioned, absolutely, as a minister, I mean, I do come from a place. Public health is, tries to work through consensus basis. Uh, you know, that's how I led the shelter, was really trying to build up people's strengths and team. You know, you can lead no matter what position you have. The first thing you get as a minister is a car. You know, I was like, ah, someone's going to drive me around. I mean, like, it's just so bizarre. And people are deferential to you. And it doesn't matter if you're a nice person or not. Like, it's just the position that you hold. And uh, and then, yes, the behavior of parliamentarians in question period. I remember thinking uh, just how abusive it was. You know, people hurling insults and uh, just unbelievable yelling and screaming. It's still, I still haven't. We quite uh, got the hang of question period, if you can believe it, because I don't get that many questions. But you get up, and it's it's literally like you're being well, you you are being verbally abused while you're responding. So to get used to that style, I mean, I've worked my whole life in um, trying to understand power dynamics and abuse and 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 you know abusive relationships and understanding how to how to you know, have respectful relationships and, and recognize when you, you are in an abusive relationship where there's power differentials. And so there you are in this place where it's completely normalized, completely tolerated. In fact, there's nothing you can do about it. That it is the way that it is. I mean, we've tried on our side to, you know, limit the amount of clapping that we do for each other and not heckle and try to bring the tone down. But, you know, it, it, it's like the shame walk in Game of Thrones, right? You stand up. <laughs> yeah, people are, if they could hurl things at you, they would be, absolutely. But, uh, you know, there are a few rules, right? But it's, they're very slim. And so it is a, it's getting used to speaking in that place of confrontation and it's overt, uh, aggressive confrontation. That has been a real learning curve for me. And it's, you know, people don't realize, they think, well, why can't they just have a good discussion during question mm-hmm. period? But you get 35 seconds to respond, to, to ask your question and to respond. And you can't go over time because they shut off your microphone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that 35 seconds, you're trying to punch through so that you get clipped on the national media. That's or, or avoid the national or, or, media. Or not get clipped, <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> One or the other. But it's, um, it's, 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 it
it's it's so it's set up to be extremely high stakes, and uh, it's I find it's it's kind of a, a bizarre artificial. Yeah, nothing happens in question period. It looks, it's no. theater. It, it really is. I mean, you know, um, uh, committees is where the work happens. That's where ministers can be held to account. Uh, parliamentarians can have witnesses. They can really dig into legislation, you know, clause by clause, and determine, is this really what the government, you know, will this achieve what the government says it's going to achieve, et cetera, et cetera. But question period is, from my perspective, it's mainly theater. Uh, because there isn't, as you said, the time. I mean, sometimes you really want to be able to give a more fulsome answer because it would help people, parliamentarians and Canadians, understand, but you've got 35 seconds. Yeah, there's no shades of grey. No. On the so. Senate, it's all shades of grey. There's no time limit whatsoever. <laughs> so maybe well, you, you can embrace that. But it, it would seem... <laughs> I, I would find it hard. If you really feel like you're being abused, how then can you, like stand in line next to that member of parliament in the cafeteria and not want to throw daggers at him with your eyes. Well, I think it, for me, it's on a range. I mean, there's people that are really, really abusive and I wouldn't choose to be their friend. They're not just abusive in question period. They're abusive, abusive online. There's like, there are abusive parliamentarians or just like any other place in the world, you have a spectrum. And then there are people across the, the, what do we call that? The floor uh, that uh, that are you know from a different party that you become really fond of as well, and uh, and so for me, I, I mean, I've had the for example privilege of traveling with a few different NDP MPs for various events and and become really fond of them, you know. And I would in any other circumstance probably hang out. I just don't have a lot of time to hang out anywhere these days. But uh, you know, so it really depends on the individual. And uh, and you see a pattern of behavior usually from uh, different MPs. I mean, everybody, you know, is entitled to lose their temper in that space, I guess, once in a while. But there are differences in the way that people express themselves. And I personally choose to not be around people who are going to abuse me in real life. Like I have to accept things in the House of Commons that I wouldn't accept anywhere else, but in real life, I still get to control who I will interact with, and that's how I deal with but it. But some people can be uh, thunderous in the House of Commons and then joke around and be collegial. Like John Baird was a master at that, who, I mean, oh, he would rain holy hell on you know the opposition when he was in the House, but he was... It sounds odd, but he was very funny, and well, you you mm -hmm. know him out there, and um, so it was it was kind of a weird Jekyll and Hyde for some people that they it was theater, and it was when you're theater, off stage, you're and they were out of character when they were not on camera, and I found that very disconcerting as well. I want to talk about um, the dynamic with young women, especially um, in the House of Commons, because I'm sure the audience has read a lot about some current and former staffers who um, have written, sometimes in first person or just spoken with reporters, about um, how they feel that they are li living in a very difficult environment where they experience things, but they can't talk about it. And um, Patty, you mentioned your bill. Um, but a few years back, when we had those two members of your caucus, um, Peggy, who made allegations, well, one member made allegations about two different liberal MPs who were kicked out, and then we had this new formal process um, where the chief human resource officer of the House could hear complaints. Um, now we've had two years of reports, and we've found there's been several complaints, um, but none, none have been substantiated. What message 
does that give young women and men on the Hill about coming forward? And I know your bill seeks to address that, but what confidence can young people have that they really are in a safe space to speak out? Well, I mean, absolutely. That's the foundation of the bill. And, you know, to it's all federally regulated spaces, mm -hmm. first of all. It's, uh, it's the Canada Labour Code, so it will address all federally regulated spaces. But parliamentarian staff have usually, historically, actually always been excluded mm -hmm. from protections under the Canada Labour Code. So we really wanted to address those kinds of stories. And, you know, look, I, I know legislation is not going to change a culture. I mean, we have, uh, you know, all kinds of laws. It doesn't mean people follow them all the time and, and act accordingly. But it does provide a foundation and a place to start from that will provide people some of those basic protections in the workplace. Um, and it's also, it's also stirring up a whole bunch of conversations that I think are important for culture change. I mean, the kinds of questions I get from colleagues from all different stripes are, and, and men in particular are, well, can I, can I still, like someone said to me the other day, that's a really nice dress. And then it was a male, of course, and he said, uh, he said, uh, oh, is it, is it okay if I say that? And he was sincere. And I thought, you know, th this is a great because he's actually asking me uh, if that's okay. And some people will say it's gone too far. And I say, great. No, I don't think it has. I think we're starting to have conversations now about what personal boundaries look like and how you respond when you're uncomfortable and how you should interact with, with people that are much less powerful than you, mm -hmm. much younger than you. This is ultimately about power. This is less about gender and more about power, if you ask me. And so, you know, those are the kinds of conversations that have been stimulated through introducing legislation, through having uh, a more a vocal conversation on the Hill. And so I, I think we know that legislation is critical because it gives that framework and that foundation. People will know what their rights are. They will have uh, a policy in their workplace. They will have a process to go through. They can go to the Labor Department if, in fact, that process isn't followed. But it is also stimulating a very important and critical conversation. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a, uh, as you mentioned, there's a, a really extreme power dynamic on Parliament Hill. Uh, the majority of MPs are men. Uh, I don't know the breakdown of staff, but the, the staff are overwhelmingly young. Um, and uh, everybody, almost everybody is, you know, they're away from home. MPs are away from home. Uh, it is an environment where there are many social activities uh, every night of the week and alcohol, high stress, confrontation, uh, frankly, a lot of testosterone. Mm -hmm. And it's um, it, it, it can be an environment where uh, people cross boundaries and it doesn't feel, I think especially for young people, it doesn't feel as though you're safe to come forward. And I think party politics is part mm -hmm. of that. Where are you betraying mm -hmm. your party if you come forward and complain about someone in your own party? If you are working for an MP, uh, you might be one of two people in your office. Can, can you really continue to work there mm -hmm. with a complaint? Like it, it would be so uncomfortable if you... Or complain. if you say something, you get a black mark and no one will hire you. No one mm -hmm. will hire you. So it's, it, it becomes 
very difficult. Um, so I, I don't know. I feel strongly that there should have been and hopefully now will be uh, a clear process by which people can complain, but also uh, education. Mm -hmm. I think every member of parliament, every staff person uh, who works for a party, but every everyone who works on the Hill uh, should have mandatory training and it should deal with all of these power dynamics, it should deal with the issue of consent, it should deal with the, the um, complaint procedure and make that a welcoming procedure that ultimately, um, you know, may, I'm fine with trying to foster um, an informal resolve if that's possible. Uh, I've dealt with some complaints where you can informally resolve issues. Um, but that ultimately there is uh, an arbiter outside who can make an impartial decision um, and try to find a solution so that uh, people who do come forward and file a complaint understand that it will be dealt with fairly, it will be uh, dealt with expeditiously, and that there is the potential for a fair outcome. Not everything can be proven, but um, that everything will be resolved. I should note that the NDP is actually unionized, so there is a formal structure within the NDP office. As women in your parties, did you feel sort of ownership or feel like you should be a mentor to other women or a, a resource for women who might be going through this? Women and men, I should say, not just women who go through this. Uh, Pardon me. It's, you know, I think, I mean, absolutely, if, if, a, if a young woman comes forward, I will always make time to listen to her, regardless about uh, the topic, because I think that's our responsibility as women. I've been mentored by so many phenomenal women in my life. I'm here because of the contributions of many incredible, incredible women who have taken the time out of their often very busy schedules to give me advice. So I will always look for that opportunity when people ask me. So yes, I, I see that as my responsibility as a person, um, not necessarily as a parliamentarian. Um, I think uh, I think it's my responsibility to create a workplace that uh, is safe. I think I have that ability as an MP and as a minister to take control of the domains in which I am an employer uh, and to... Um, be the best leader that I can be and have a philosophy in my little organization, meaning my Hill and my constituency office and my ministerial team that is focused on inclusiveness and growth and respect and has a foundation of sort of basic HR principles. I think when we're talking about training, it's not just about harassment and sexual violence, it's about leadership. Let's face it, I mean, we have 365, is it, MPs across the country. They've come to, 338. sorry, 338, <laughs> uh, I should know that, um, that have come to us from a variety of different backgrounds. They're lawyers, they're accountants, they're uh, in some cases, they're scientists. They're, you know, they're they may have had staff before. They often have not had a staff before. There is not a foundation of understanding how to lead people. It's almost like setting up a small business. That's what I feel. It's you exactly really like have to hire and set up procedures. So people, you know, the bill uh, we focused a lot about the harassment and sexual harassment in general, but we're talking about the entire continuum from bullying all the way up to sexual violence. And so when you think about you know, employers that you may have had that yelled at you and berated you and demeaned you in your life. 
that's abusive behavior in the workplace. And so this legislation covers behavior on the continuum. And I think it's important when we're talking about training that we're not just talking about the understanding of the experience of sexual harassment or sexual violence, but that we're talking about leadership principles. How do you get the best out of people? Well, you get the best out of people when you recognize them and when you encourage them to grow and you give them the tools to grow and you give them the correction in a way that's going to be meaningful for them to uh, develop, you know, rather than berating them and shaming them and embarrassing them and firing them without any uh, understanding about what, you know, what's gone on. And I mean, because this place, Parliament Hill, is basically HR free, you can <laughs> fire someone tomorrow for no reason. You don't have to give them a reason. There is very little uh, kind of responsibility on the employer to to follow any kind of what would be normal principles of any other workplace. And so, you know, I think that that has to be a critical component of the training when, when you're a new MP, that you understand that you are now an employer as well, and that as an employer, there are good leadership principles that will help you have a really effective team and help your people grow and feel safe in their environment. I'm going to just ask you two more questions, and then we'll open it up to the floor for question. Um, Peggy, when you worked in the union sector, you brought in this women advocate role, and I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about that and um, what changes you thought that brought. Oh, thank you, thank you for that question. That was, um, yeah, when, when I, I worked for the Canadian Auto Workers Union, and um, it was a very male-dominated union, uh, but to their credit, they had structures built in to the union side for women's committees, annual women's conferences. And after the Montreal massacre back in um, 1989, we held a couple of conferences on the issue of violence against women. And the first one um, in 1990 was really just a huge kind of... Um, discussion about what was what was happening and amongst our our members but the following year we devoted to finding solutions and we talked about solutions within the union and having procedures and discussions and and avenues uh, within the union but we also thought about the employer and the bargaining table because we thought given the incidence of harassment and violence in society, that that had to be represented within our own workplaces. And so we thought, well, in, in many large workplaces, in big industrial workplaces, it, it's a, a bit better now, but, but still uh, very male-dominated. You know, if, if women wanted to come forward with a complaint, uh, there may not be anyone that they could talk to. They didn't necessarily want to go to a male union representative or a male HR person. And so we developed a, a system of uh, uh, specially designated representatives in the workplace called women's advocates. And they were uh, specially trained in and not to be an expert in in counseling per se but to be an intake person and to be able to refer the person who comes to them to resources in the community so they'd have they weren't a full-time position they were somebody who was in the workplace but they had access to a confidential phone line and um, uh, a confidential office when they needed uh, to to meet with someone and um, 
so we put up posters in the women's washrooms that said, "Sometimes only another woman could understand." Mm. And um, this was back—I forget what year we bargained it, but it was in the 1990s. And so they would be able to describe our harassment procedure, and um, you know, someone might come to them uh, who maybe initially came to talk about a credit problem or a financial problem, but then when they dug deeper, found out that there was a, an issue of abuse or violence or it, it could be anything. And they would really refer them to the resources in the community or connect them where they needed to go. And, and they've, and, and it turns out it's not just women who are going there and it's not just, um, I don't know, uh, people whose human rights are violated or think they're being, their, their rights are violated. You know, we have, um, uh, men who are, who are going to the women's advocates and saying, listen, I think my, my daughter or my sister or whoever is in an abusive relationship and I don't know where to turn. I don't know how to handle this. And so they've been a bit of a lifeline. So we started this in the auto industry, but now we have, I think, about uh, over 150 workplaces where we have these women's advocates and um, and what we used to call them women women advocates. In some cases, they're men um, uh, who, but who are part of an equity group. Uh, and they, it's been a very successful program because it has given the workplace a resource um, and an outlet that we didn't have before. So it's something that's been a real success story. In fact, after I left, one of our, um, our, uh, the director of our women's programs, um, who really, you know, I was one of the ones initiating this, but she really expanded it. And she spoke about it at the UN in New York. So it's something that she has, she really grabbed onto and, and built and expanded. It was quite successful. Mm. Um, you know, you talk about women's advocate, you talked a little bit about uh, mentorship and how important that was for you. And we've been talking a lot the last couple of months about the Me Too movement. Um, just as a way of closing this conversation up, do you think that that is going to lead to real change or is this the change it is leading to? Mm. Well, I, I think, you know, Every movement has the risk of sort of dying out uh, if it's not if it's not structuralized in a way that takes it to the next step, right? Certainly, I mean, we uh, we are very excited to introduce legislation that's going to formalize a structure for people working on the Hill, but also uh, you know strengthen protections for people in federally regulated workplaces. I think, uh, but is that? That's not a direct result of the Me Too movement. It just no. I mean, we it. it was in my mandate letter. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's reflection of a prime minister that understands that gender equality. You can't talk about gender equality if people are still experiencing daily violence in their workplaces or in their lives. That uh, if we're going to have a conversation about the success of women in our in our country in our economy, that there are fundamental pieces that have to be there, such as the elimination of violence, as uh, Peggy mentioned, affordable childcare, uh, strengthening you know. Um, 
uh, legislation and, and benefits in a way that ensures a more even division of, of work, like the, the new use it or lose it parental leave that we introduced this year in Budget 2018. I mean, there are structural components that go into gender equality. And violence, the experience of harassment and violence is, is one critical piece. Mm. You know, I've worked with many women who are experiencing violence on the continuum from you know, verbal violence all the way to severe extreme violence in their lives in the case of working in the shelter. Um, you cannot move forward in anything while you are experiencing an ongoing experience of violence in your life. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you look at the movement of Me Too, I mean, what it's done is it's amplified a conversation. Now what leaders have to do is is formalize that so that we don't lose it in the wind and it is not another sort of snazzy hashtag about a specific issue that, you know, people jump on the bandwagon about for four or five weeks and then it disappears. Our goal is to continue this conversation about gender equality with a reflection that if we don't address the extreme violence that women are experiencing in their lives structurally, interpersonally, in the workplace, that we are essentially losing an opportunity to move forward that agenda of, of having women experience whatever it is that they want to experience in their lives, in their careers, their professions. And so from my perspective, that's where their, you know, culture and politics can really support each other. That if you have leaders that are willing to take these issues seriously and do what they can do at the political lens to create structural change, then we can continue a movement. But if people are not listening, if you have, uh, you know, people shouting into the wind on Twitter, on Facebook, in the media, but nobody is actually taking those structural changes that need to happen seriously, um, it, I don't see how it can continue. Well, I, um, I, I think that Me Too has dramatically changed the conversation around uh, women's role in society, around gender violence. I mean, I completely agree with Patty that it is about power. And uh, I mean, violence and abuse have been about trying to silence women. Mm -hmm. I mean, death is the ultimate silencing. <laughs> and um, But there's that continuum of silencing. And what Me Too is doing, it has amplified women's voices. And... Um, I, I think there, you know, there's, there's pushback. There's always going to be pushback whenever you're trying to make change. But I, I think the goal is a fundamental realignment to achieve gender equality. And I think that ultimately is the goal. And the way to achieve gender equality is to transform our structures, political structures, institutional structures, and, and to be able to do that, I think uh, that, that's why we need to elect more women uh, so that we have women driving this in our power structures. So it doesn't mean to drive men out, but it means to work with men and to have equality with men. And, uh, you know, in the states where... Uh, the whole anti-gun violence movement was amplified so dramatically over the weekend. You know, if they're finding politicians are not listening, their slogan is vote them out. And uh, I, I would like to see that around gender equality as well, that if politicians aren't listening, then vote them out. 
because I think that if the ultimate goal is gender equality, um, we need to have at again at the table politicians that are responding to that goal and are trying to make that change. And I think ultimately, although we're going through this process, ultimately it will be better for women, it will be better for men and people who identify as men or women or neither. And that, you know, it's fundamentally, can't we all just get along <laughs> and share what we try to teach our toddlers? <laughs> and I think that, you know, that this... This movement can help achieve that change, and I'm an optimist. Or never, I never would have run for politics, and I know you must be too. Uh, and so I believe that change is possible, and that this movement will will be a key part of that. That was Patty Heidu, Canada's Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Labour, and Peggy Nash, a Labour pioneer and the former NDP MP for Parkdale High Park. They join us for a special panel to mark Women's History Month at HuffPost Canada. I'm Althea Raj, and as you can probably tell, I'm suffering with the flu. So thanks for putting up with my sniffles and listening to this. We'll be back with the regular edition of Follow Up very soon. <laughs>